Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Exodus. Enjoy the message. All right, so let's jump straight in. Exodus 34 verse 4. Uh, we've been through the, uh, the sinful moment at Sinai where, where Moses came down from the mountain and the people of Israel had corrupted themselves. That was God's words. They have corrupted themselves. And so we pick up the story here in chapter 34, verse 4. Have a look at this. It says, So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. And the reason it says like the first indicates that they've been given another chance. Moses has been told You got another chance. The people of Israel, God has been gracious to whom he'll be gracious. God has been merciful. They all deserve to die. They broke the covenant. They literally ground the covenant, the the calf to dust, and they literally drank it. That's how broken the covenant was. Moses, in his fury and his righteous anger, broke the tablets that God had written on that that he had given to the people of Israel as a demonstration that they had broken the covenant. But here we see the good news. Moses has been told, hey, get two, two more tablets of stone just like the first. We read on. It says, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. The reason he got up early is because it's quite a trek. It's a long journey. This is a big mountain. And I'm thinking Moses is pretty trim and slim at this point because he's been up and down numerous times. For some reason, I imagine Moses as as quite a cuddly character in the beginning, but no doubt he's fairly ripped at this point. So as he goes up Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. He's a weightlifter. He, he's engaged in a mountain climb with some weight. Now, the rest of chapter 34 is all about what happens in this last scene. And it's a spillover of last week, of chapter 33. So 33 and 34 are a commentary on the same scenario. Firstly, it's judgment, but then it's mercy. And so what we're going to focus on is the goodness of God, the goodness of God in giving Israel another chance. And we can't literally even call this a second chance because actually this is the umpteenth chance. If we look back on their journey in the wilderness, if we look at what's happened at Sinai, if we look at the rebellion, at the moaning and the groaning and the complaints, this is the umpteenth time that God has been gracious. So what unfolds in this chapter is three things. We're going to see God's covenant restored. We're going to see God's commandments restated. And at the center of all of that, but we're going to talk about it third, is God's character revealed. God's character revealed. The first two will be quick. The third one we're going to spend a bit of time with. So let's look firstly at God's covenant restored. In verse 10, we jump down to verse 10 and 11. We read this. And he, God, God said, behold, I am making a covenant Now, he's already done that, right? Remember, the reason he's doing it again is because they broke it. And they don't deserve another chance. They don't deserve a restoration, a renewal of the covenant. But God is a God of mercy. And so he says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do what? Marvels. Hey, God, you've already done that. Quail from heaven, manna parting of the Red Sea, plagues on Egypt, the rescue out of Egypt. 
Talk about marvels. And here he says, don't worry, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do marvels again. Such as, look at this, such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And you know, the awesome part of it is that he's going to take his nation, this nation that God has formed here at Sinai, that God has formed and called to be a holy nation, and he's going to send them into an unholy people. He's going to send them into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, where the Canaanites live. And they were a pagan, wicked people. And so God's going to take what should be a holy nation that's not very holy. Anyway, they set apart. God's been gracious to them, and he's going to drive them into this land, and God's going to drive out the wicked people because it's a picture of heaven. The promised land is a picture of heaven, and in heaven there is no sin. And so if there is sin in the land, sin needs to be driven out. That's what we read now in verse 11. Look at this. He says, observe what I command you this day. Behold, this is God speaking, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And so God is reminding Moses and Israel here. This is up now on the mountain for the umpteenth time. God is reminding them, hey, I said I wasn't going to go with you, but I'm going to go with you. An act of actual grace. We're not just, God doesn't just talk about being gracious. He is gracious. He is being gracious to them. And then he even reminds them of the covenant T's and C's. Remember we spoke about this when we got to the, the commandments part and all the details about case law and all about how they should behave in the land when they get there. And so he reminds them, look at verse 12. It says, take care. God says to them, Watch, be careful, take care, lest you make a covenant. Don't covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. So you've got to be the holy nation that I've called you to be. Don't become like them. He says, lest it become a snare in your midst. And here's what they must do in order to, to, to stay set apart. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, their false gods. You need to cut them down. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you, make for a, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And so in other words, he says, make sure that you're not tempted. Do everything I tell you to do so that you are not tempted. So that when you're invited, you're like, hey, to what? It's all been removed. So we see the covenant being renewed. Secondly, we see God's commandments being restated in this passage. If we go down to verse 27 and to verse 28, it repeats it again. So verse 1, he was told to take the two tablets up on the mountain. And then again, we read this. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, he neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, don't, don't, don't stumble over the 40 days and 40 nights with no bread and no water. If God could part the sea, God could keep Moses, right? But what we see here is that Moses is given again the Ten Commandments, 
And we don't have time to read it, but from verse 18 through to verse 26, he's also given all the feasts and the festivals and the Sabbath laws and the first fruit laws. It's repeated again because this is what Israel are to shape their lives around. They are to be a distinct, unique people. And this was their calendar. Their, their whole year calendar was shaped around these events, these feasts, these festivals, everything from a weekday Sabbath all the way through to monthly and uh, ongoing feasts and festivals. And so these are not just random commandments. These are specific. These, these have to do with loyalty and trust, which God has seen that they've already broken, so he reminds them. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. There's a seeming contradiction here, but it's not a contradiction. And I point it out because I think it's a helpful thing for us to see. In verse 1 of chapter 34, we read this again. So have a look at verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I, God, will write on the tablets. So here we have in verse 1, God is going to be the one doing the writing. But if you look at verse 27 and 28, it says there, The Lord said to Moses, write these words. So now God says to Moses, no, you're going to do the writing. You write the words, verse 28, and he, that's Moses, wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So is this a contradiction? Is this, is this an error? Is this a, an, an authorial error in, in the narrative? So who was it? Was it God? Did you write it or did Moses write it? And the answer is both. This is how we get Scripture. This is how Scripture came about. God speaks the words and man writes the words. The Bible that you have with you today is from God but authored by man. This is what we call the doctrine of inspiration. It's how we get the Bible. This is how God spoke. God spoke through prophets and through apostles. And in the prophets and in the apostles, they wrote Scripture. God inspired them. God literally carried them along. God gave them the words to speak and to write. And so we get the Bible. And so there's no contradiction. When God says, I will write them, he's saying, I will write them through you. I'm going to inspire you, and I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to write. And so we have the covenant restored. We have the commandments reinstated. But right at the center of all of these wonderful, gracious acts, we see the third thing, and that is God's character revealed. Now, we saw this take place in chapter 33, but this is kind of a magnified view of that moment where God's glory descended and, and God's glory passed by Moses. And so we're kind of zooming in on that particular moment. And so let's read again a little bit of context from verse 29. It says, when Moses came down, firstly, what happens when he comes down? When he came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Let's just let that sink in. So this is the moment where he was hidden in the rock and the glory of God comes down. Moses can't see the face of God because he won't live. No one can see the face of God and live. But God's glory passes by and God speaks to Moses. And just that little glimpse 
affects his whole being. So much so that when Moses comes down after 40 days and 40 nights, he's still glowing. I think this, is my, this might be where we get that, that term. You know, when, you, when you're so excited or you're in love and, and you, people say, oh, you're glowing. You, know, you must be in love. Who's, who's the lucky person or whatever it might be? Moses was reflecting the glory of God. There was a real sense in which he was reflecting the glory of God. We read on in verse 34, it says, Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And so what happened was he was so reflecting the glory of God before the people that they were like, Moses, we can't look at you. Remember we spoke about the sun, the brightness of the glory of God being like the sun. It was like he had a little bit of that. And so he had to veil his face when he spoke to the Israelites so that they could see him and actually bear with him all that he had to say. The verse goes on and says, And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded. So he came out of the tent of meeting, he came down from the mountain, and he would speak to the people of Israel. And he was not just giving them the word of God, he was reflecting to them the glory of God. Now here's what I want us to learn. I want us to see here, once again, that Moses encounters the glory of God, not so much by what he sees with his eyes, but what he hears. And the point is so important because so many people today want to walk by sight. We want to see God, people say. We want to see his works. We want to see his deeds. We want to see if people think they, they say this, if I see a miracle, then I'll believe. No, you know what? You won't. I know you won't. Because it's not your eyes that are deceiving you. It's your heart that's deceiving you. And so your heart needs to be changed. It's not, it's not what you see. And, and what we see here is that the glory of God is seen with the eyes of our hearts. Moses is, is, is changed. Moses sees the glory of God by what he hears. So God says, I will show you my glory. And then God speaks. God speaks to him. And so, church, we need to know this, that the way that we see God is by hearing God, hearing the word of God. When we open the Bible, when you hear the word of God preached, we get welcomed into his presence. We see God. We see God by hearing. With the ears of faith, we see God. And so, Verses 5 through 7, zoom in on what Moses was told on the mountain. And this is critical to our understanding of who God is. So God says, listen, Mo, my glory and my goodness will pass before you. And here's what he says. Look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Let's just... Think through that a little bit. The Lord, Yahweh, creator God, descended in the cloud and stood with him there. It's no wonder his face was shining. And proclaimed. Look at what he does. He speaks. The Lord speaks. The Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
The Lord, verse 6, the Lord passed before him. Now remember, his back's turned. He's not going to see this. He's, he's going to maybe catch a glimpse of the glory. He can barely look at the glory. But, but here's what's happening. He hears. He hears the glory of God. And in hearing, he beholds the glory. The Lord passed before him, verse 6, and proclaimed. He spoke. Here's what he said. The Lord, the Lord. In other words, there is no other Lord. Yahweh, creator God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. There is no other God. Here's, here's who I am. He's declaring, he's revealing himself to Moses and to Israel. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. These words are some of the most important words in all of Scripture. God is revealing his character, his glory. When we speak about the character of God, we could quite easily just say we're speaking about the glory of God. The glory of God revealed is the attributes of God proclaimed. When we behold the attributes of God, when we behold his nature and his character, when we think it through, when we sense them, when we feel them, when we consider the nature and the person of God, we encounter the glory of God. And if we don't get these words right, church, if we don't get this revelation right, we're going to mess up the rest of the story. It's kind of like watching Star Wars. I know this is a really bad example. But if you don't know that Darth Vader is actually Luke's father, you get lost in the story, right? At least I was. But if we don't know this about God, what God says here is so indispensable. It is critical to our knowledge of him. Who is God? And God is revealed here. And so I want to just walk through each of these attributes for a little bit and then make a few conclusions. So, so here's the first thing God says to Moses. God says, I'm gracious. God is gracious. This isn't just theory for Moses, remember? This is on the back end of horrific rebellion. This is on the back end of great wickedness. And so when God says, I am gracious. Moses is like, I know, you're incredibly gracious. You see, God isn't just a theory. He is a, a, a powerful experience that we get to have. He invites us into his presence. Moses is a picture of Christ. Moses, who goes into the glory of God, is a picture of Christ who represents Israel like Jesus represents us. And so he says, I am gracious. In other words, I don't treat people the way I should. He treats us as we don't deserve to be treated. 
He doesn't do to us what he should do to us. At least that's what we see in the story. I mean, all of Israel at this point should have been wiped out. They have broken the covenant. We must not forget that on numerous occasions, they responded by saying, Yes, O Lord, you've been amazing. You've rescued us. You've fed us. You've, you've kept us. You've spoken to us. You've revealed yourself to us. You've done mighty marvels and signs and wonders. And every single time they go, yes, we will. Yes, we will. But every time they say with their lives, no, we don't. They turn their backs on God. And so it's well within God's rights at this particular point to say, I'm done with you. But what does he say? The first thing he says is, I am gracious. I am gracious. Secondly, he says, I am merciful. God is merciful. He's not just gracious, but he's also merciful. He goes beyond what anyone else would go beyond. He is tender and kind and gracious beyond being gracious. He is merciful. He treats us with unbelievable favor. Unbelievable favor. And then he goes on and he says, I'm a God gracious and merciful and slow to anger. Slow to anger. And I reckon at this point they're going, wow, that's true. You should have wiped us out long ago. He's a holy God, remember. And remember, he's sending them in a, then into a land that is a sinful land. And if they, if they got to drive out sin from the land, surely God should be driving out sin from them. Surely if they're going to send out the Canaanites, then God should send them out too because they're sinners. Yes, because God is slow to anger. You know what's interesting in the Hebrew? In the Hebrew, this phrase, slow to anger, is literally translated with a long nose. I don't know, it's, it's a weird phrase in the Hebrew, but literally it means with a long nose. God has a long nose. Did you know that? I didn't know that until I had studied this. It, it, it literally means that God has a big nose. Now, I don't want to ruin it for you guys, right? But here's what the point is. It's, it's leaning into the idiom of God doesn't have a short fuse. He has a long fuse. He's unlike us. You know, we, we, when people cross us, when people harm us and hurt us, we're not slow to anger. We're quick to get offended. We're quick to, to defend ourselves. We're quick to get angry, but not God. You can cross him and cross him and cross him, and he is slow to anger. We so, he's so patient. He is so kind. We see this beautiful picture that his fuse burns long. But more, God is not only gracious and merciful and slow to anger, he abounds in steadfast love. And what this means here is covenant love. The word steadfast is the Hebrew word hesed, which means covenant love. In other words, this is a special love. This is a love that God has for his people. This isn't just a general love. There is a difference in God. And you need to understand this, guys, that there is, there is layers of how God loves within the uniqueness of who God is. God has a covenant love for his people, his church. 
And by the way, there's no difference between the people of the Old Testament who are saved by faith through Christ and the people of the New Testament, the church, who are saved by faith through Christ. There is only one way of salvation, and there is only one people of God. And His covenant love is for His people. It's for His people. And it is a unique love. It is a love that abounds, the text says. He's abounding in covenant love. Yes, God does love the whole world, for God so loved the world. But imagine if God only loved you, Christian, the way he loved the world. Think about it this way. I know Mark and Susanna for many years, many, many years. We've been friends. Got saved together when we were like 16. And so I have a love for them. I I love Susanna. But imagine if I loved her inappropriately. Mark would not be slow to anger, right? He would be abounding in wrath. I need to love Susanna differently to the way I love my wife. There is a difference. And the way God loves his people, the church, is different to how he loves unbelievers. God loves unbelievers. Don't get me wrong. He loves the world. He loves unbelievers. But he loves his children with a steadfast love, an unending love, a a, a dying love. He died for the church to make her his own, for the sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. There's a covenant love, a love that cannot separate us. Nothing can separate us from God's true love. Another example is that I, I, I love kids. You know, if, if I heard a kid crying in the mother's room, I would run in there and check, is everything okay? And then I'd realize it's not my kids. So I'll be like, hey, are you all right? Okay, I'm going to go find your mom. Because then it's snotty and, you know. I, I... But if it's my kid, who cares if there's snot? You know, it's like, come here. Because there's a covenant love. It's my child. I'm not going to go, okay, I'll go call mom. No, no. This is... Bone of my bone, blood of my blood. This is my child. This is this love that God has for his children. God loves you, church, with a steadfast love, abounding in steadfast love, and finally abounding in faithfulness, abounding in faithfulness. He will keep his word. He will not forget you. He does not fail. He is not fickle. He has not forgotten you. He is faithful. And this is such a hope for us because life gets tough and we go through seasons of life where we think, God, where are you? God, have you forgotten me? But God hasn't because he's abounding in love for you. And if he's abounding in love for you, then he's also faithful to you. And so what do you do in the trouble then? What do you do in the difficult season? Well, It's not going to just go away, but here's what you can do. You can go, I know that there is a purpose in this. It's not just meaningless. And the reason it's not meaningless is because you're his child. And he cares for you. And so he's allowing you to go through whatever you're going through, and there's a reason for it. There is a purpose to it. It's not just meaningless nonsense that you're going through. It's Carefully grafted, it's been allowed through the sovereign plan of God for your life. That's what Romans 8.28 means. 
that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It's all the bad things that he works for good. Obviously, the good things are good. So it can't be all the good things that work for good because that's just obvious. No, it's all things, all the bad things he works for good for those who love the Lord. And so there's a purpose in our pain and there's a purpose in our trials. And so firstly, we see this picture of the glory of God in his attributes. But notice again in verse 7, it says, not only is this who he is, but it says he's keeping steadfast love. For thousands. Now you might think, oh, surely that should be millions by now. And it is millions. And you might say, oh, but, but it says thousands. Does that mean, you know, are we going Jehovah's Witness here? Is it like 144,000 or how many thousand is it? And the answer is the Bible often uses numbers figuratively. For example, the Lord owns the cattle of a thousand hills. Or is it only, what about the poor 1,001? Hill or cattle. Does he not care about that one? No, it's symbolic of a complete, definite number, a complete, definite group. And so his steadfast love is for all his people who have ever lived and existed. And here's what he does for them. Forgiving. You see, this gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, what does that feel like? We know these things about God, but what does it feel like? It comes to us with forgiveness. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And then it says this, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Here's what I want you to see here. That we have this beautiful picture of all these wonderful attributes but the backdrop to all of these amazing attributes is the doctrine of sin. The reason he's gracious and merciful is because they've been a, a wicked people. The reason he's slow to anger is because they deserved anger. The reason he is abounding in faithfulness is because they've been unfaithful. It doesn't mean that, he, that, that, that their behavior causes that, but it's magnifying his attributes, the doctrine of sin. Here's the problem. In the world today, people don't want to talk about sin. Even in churches, they don't want to talk about sin. But here's the problem. When we bring the doctrine of sin down or we're trying to get rid of it or cover it and not talk about sin, we're going to lose the glory of the attributes of God. Because the attributes of God here are so glorious in light of their wickedness. And so we don't want to make much of sin. We don't want to glorify sin, but we, neither do we want to get rid of it in a doctrinal sense. Obviously, we want to get rid of it personally. But the tragedy in, us, in our world is that people don't want to call sin, sin anymore. They want to talk about, oh, it's just a weakness. It's just a mistake. Well, I was just born that way. Well, of course you were born that way. We're all born sinners. Our selfish, sinful hearts are fallen, and we don't want to own it. We don't want to own it. And the problem is, when we don't own it, we don't see the glory of God in all of its fullness. Because if we do away with sin, if we do away with the, the nature of sin, we lose the wonder of the glory of God as it's revealed here. 
And so in order to truly know God, we don't want just a shadow of God. We don't want a deconstructed view of God. We want a full version of God. We want to see God for who he really is. And what this vision presents to us, what the story presents to us, is that God is merciful, but he's also just. Because some people say, oh, I'll take verse 6, but don't give me verse 7. What's this line about who will by no means clear the guilty? We, we, we like the first part. Greg, give us the first part, you know, about being graceful and merciful and kind and gentle. And, but what's this part about judgment? But, that important but, but who will by no means it means he's not going to just sweep it under the rug. He's not going to overlook it. He's not going to forget it. He sees everything. And by no means will he clear the guilty. And so we have to ask the question, well, which is it? Is, it, is he a God of mercy then or is he a God of judgment? And the answer is we don't have to choose. Because the glory of God is on display. And what we see here is that God is not one-dimensional. The glory of God is not one-dimensional. The glory of God is multi-dimensional. In other words, what I'm trying to tell you is that when we talk about the holiness of God, which, which we don't talk about enough, it means that each and every attribute of God is perfectly the same in all of its fullness. And so he's not 50% merciful and 50% just. He is fully merciful and he is fully just. And so when he judges, it's perfect judgment. It is perfect justice that will be served. He will not clear the guilty. And so too often we have Christians who want verse 6 but not verse 7. We want a God who's comfortable to live with. A God who is just kind. Kevin DeYoung, in, in one of his books, he speaks about the problem in the world today in terms of our view of God, and he says that people have a view of God either as a cookie God or a clipboard God. And the, the clipboard God is a God who's always looking over your shoulder, always checking if you're being naughty or nice. You know, the Santa Claus kind of God. A God who's got a clipboard and he's like, yep, I saw that, noted, too bad, so sad, I'm coming for you, busted. You know, a God who's just constantly over our shoulders, checking our lives constantly. And I think that there's still some of that in people's lives, that, that that's who God is. But I think the, the, the far greater problem is not the clipboard God, but the cookie God. And here's what he talks about. He says, he says most people today have a, have a view of God. Is, he's the cookie God. He's walking around saying, are you okay? Have a cookie. I see you messed up. Don't worry, I didn't notice. Have a cookie. A cookie God. A cookie God never gets angry. A cookie God is not a real God. And so, guys, if you want the God of verse 6, gracious and merciful, 
If you want the glory of God in your life, we need to embrace all of who he is and not just pick and choose the bits we like. And why this is important is because we see this in the story. We see that the golden calf story, we see both mercy and judgment. Let's not forget that 3,000 people were killed that day. 3,000 Israelites were put to the sword, and then God sent a plague. And so God is very slow to anger, but at some point he will judge. At some point he will not clear the guilty. He will judge. You might be thinking, oh, the God I serve is not a judging God. Well, best you read the end of the story because when Jesus comes back and wraps us all up, what are we going to have? We're going to have a great big judgment. And so, of course, he's a God who's a perfect judge. But he's also a God of mercy. And here's how we get mercy because we have no claim on his mercy. The only way we get mercy is at the cross. It's because of the cross. The only way the Israelites received mercy was because of the blood of the Lamb. The very thing they were told would shape their lives was around the sacrifice. They were told to build a a tent, a tabernacle, and at the center of the tabernacle was an altar where they would sacrifice a lamb which prefigured the crucifixion of Jesus. This is the only way they would receive mercy. Mercy would come through judgment. Someone needs to be judged. And it was the lamb. The the death blow fell upon the lamb. And when the lamb was slain, you could get mercy. Do you see how it spills over to us? That on the cross, Jesus, the lamb of God, was slain. Death, judgment came to Jesus so that we get mercy. We have no claim on the attributes of God apart from the death of Christ in our place. At the cross, we see the judgment of God purchasing the mercy that we experience. And so Sinai, as we wrap up Sinai, we're going to be ending it in the next few weeks, is this glorious picture of sin, judgment, and mercy. It's a picture of the cross. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who was slain for us so that we can experience the grace and the mercy of God. Amen? Let's pray. We're going to come to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for this word to us tonight. Thank you for reminding us of who you are in your fullness. That you do not just turn a blind eye to sin. That sin will be dealt with. Sin sin will be punished. And it's right that way. It's, It's right that it is punished. And we know that our sin was punished on the cross. Jesus took our sin. Jesus was punished in our place. So that we, the guilty, could go free. It's the only way we could go free. Because we know you're not going to clear the guilty. The only way you clear the guilty is if sin is paid for. And we thank you that in Jesus, our sins were paid for. And so we get mercy. 
And what amazing grace this is. That we were blind, but now we see. That we were lost, but now we are found. That we were dead in our sins, but now we're alive in Christ. That we were orphans, but now we're adopted. That we were slaves in Egypt, but now we're sons in the promised land of Christ. Lord, we give you all the praise. Thank you for your redeeming love. Thank you for your covenant love for us, Lord. Thank you for your abounding faithfulness. We thank you that you are a God of incredible kindness and mercy, but you're also a just God. A God who is not to be messed with. You are a holy God. And we thank you that we get to be a people who can actually come into your presence. And the only way we get in is because of the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord.